if the whole Bible is good news, then how is this good news? And we already talked about that a little bit, the way in which this text is actually good news for the poor, because it's a book that says, God sees you, God cares about you, God wants you to know that you have a special role in his kingdom. Like this is an amazingly um, good news book for people who are on the margins, on the edges, uh, those kinds of things. Well, Dr. Reese, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast tonight. I am excited to be able to talk with you about the book of James. But first, let me welcome you to Faith in the Folds. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Kevin. <laughs> I am uh, I I'm excited to dig into James because this has been a favorite book of mine for a long time. It's so practical. And I mean, everybody knows, right? You know, be quick to quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. There's all these great lines out of the book of James. But before we get to all that good stuff, help us get to know you. You are currently at Asbury Seminary, but how did you get there? How long have you been there? And uh, just tell us a little bit more about you so we can uh, get to know you before we dig into the book of James. Sure, I'd be happy to do that, Kevin. I think I want to start by saying that I grew up in a mix of churches. So first in an series of non-denominational churches and then in some Baptist churches. And um, after I went to college, I decided to pursue higher education beyond college. And I went was able to go and study in England. Cool. So when I went to England, I thought, hmm, I'm in England. Maybe I should visit a Church of England church. And so I went to um, the C of E church for a few years while I was there. I did have actually a crisis of faith while I was in my PhD program mm -hmm. and I stopped going to church for a while. And one of the things I say to people is if you wanna run away from God, you shouldn't choose to room with a free Methodist missionary <laughs> and uh, <laughs> might find yourself uh, confronting significant conversations about faith in that context. And so during my time um, sharing a house with her, I decided to go to church again. And, and the way I decided to do that is I said, you know what, Lord, I'm going to go to church just in the order of churches that are on my street. So I'm going to set out from my house and I'm just going to visit whatever church. Mm -hmm. And the fifth church that I came to, so Sunday number five, was a Methodist church. And really, I was greeted by some dear saints there who just welcomed me in a way I hadn't really been welcomed in England all the previous years I'd been there. And they, they really shepherded me over the next couple of years. It was a, a beautiful um, time for me. And um, at the end of that period of time, I recommitted my life to the Lord. And some years later, it was about five years later that I actually came to Asbury. But coming to Asbury started in that Methodist church in England because yeah. Asbury has a connection to the Wesleyan tradition. Mm -hmm. And that's where I first encountered the Methodist Wesleyan tradition was in England. Yeah. 
And so some years later, there's a whole long story, but basically I would say that where I was living, I was living in New England at the time, every door closed for me in New England. I mean, I was literally unable to support myself any longer in the work I was doing there. And I didn't have a roommate anymore and, 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 and then every door opened at Asbury to come Wow! like the Lord saying, go there. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, Lord, I will go there. <laughs> right. So I came to Asbury in the spring of 2000 and I've been there for 21 years now. Wow. Wow. I did not know that you had been there that long. That's great. What, um, let me ask, what was it that, uh, that drew you to Asbury, um, or that connected you or like that was attractive uh, to Asbury? Like what, how did Asbury get on your radar? Well, that's also a longer story. But, <laughs> uh, I'm here to ask the tough questions. <laughs> the, um, what, what happened was I was at a conference and I met a scholar named Max Turner and Max and I, he's written on Ephesians at the time he was actually writing two commentaries on Ephesians. And he was so excited about the work that he was doing that he started bouncing up and down telling me about it. I'd never met him before, brand new, new uh, acquaintance. And he told me about this commentary series he was writing on. And he said to me, well, what are you working on? And I said, well, I've just finished my PhD on the book of Jude. And now I'm going to start working on the book of Second Peter. And he said, well, that is the one volume in the commentary series that we don't have an author for. Are you interested in writing wow. on that book? <laughs> and I said, sure. <laughs> and this, this is about three weeks later, I got an email from Joel Green. And at yeah. the time, Dr. Green was working at Asbury Seminary. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, well, Max and I have conferred, they were co-editors of this series. He's like, Max and I have conferred and we've decided that you're more my type of scholar. And so I'll be your editor for this series. And we started communicating by email. And a few, a few months later, I got an email from him saying there was a job opening at Asbury and asking me to apply. And that was how I got started down that track. It was all from a conversation I just like that Methodist encounter was uh -huh. opening for beginning to think about Wesleyan yeah. things. This conversation at a conference was my first connection to Asbury. <laughs> and I think the other thing to answer the second part of your question about affinities was when I decided to apply for the job at Asbury, I read the statement of faith. Mm -hmm. And when I read this statement of faith, so remember, I grew up in these non-denominational Baptist sure. traditions. Yeah. I'd gone to Church of England churches. I'd been to a Methodist church, but that just meant I went to a Methodist church. It didn't mean I had any training in Wesleyan theology right, yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. So I read the statement of faith at Asbury, and I was like, oh, my goodness, there are people who think like <laughs> me in this world. <laughs> these are my people, Yeah. <laughs> And it really did, it, it, one of the things I said to the search committee is that I feel like these are my people and this would be a homecoming for me, even though this isn't a group of people that, you know, I didn't know anybody at sure. Asbury before yeah. I came there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a little bit of my story about how I came to Asbury. Yeah. I, two things for folks in the audience, um, book deals don't always happen so easily. <laughs> Okay. Exactly. So it, 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 it does feel, I can't help but think it feels providential to some degree, right? That you had that conversation. The other thing is, 
I can definitely relate to um, to feeling very, very uh, feeling having a very warm sense about Asbury as a school. Uh, as you may remember, these guys are you know have been gone for a few years now, but in my tradition, which is a very Bible-based tradition, Churches of Christ, um, very, very serious about biblical studies, um, and you know, take languages very seriously, guys like, well, you know, Pavo Tucker, Jordan Guy, myself, Garrett Best, and uh, even Lee Hagwood, who's still currently there, um, you know, Asbury resonated with us because like, here's, a, here's a team of excellent scholars, authors, professors, communicators who take God's word very seriously. And even though the denominational differences are there, we felt perfectly at home because mm -hmm. of how seriously folks like yourself and your colleagues uh, take the Bible. And so if you're out there and you're thinking about PhD in New Testament, you know, and, and you love the Lord and you love his church and you love his word, you know, Asbury is a great place to go and I heartily recommend it. So um, I wish I could say this was sponsored by Asbury Seminary, but it's not. Maybe I could talk to Dr. Tennant about that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I think you, I, I either hadn't remembered a lot of that uh, or, um, or had, had, uh, had not heard um, kind of your story before. But it's, uh, it is fascinating to see how sometimes when we meander, when it feels like we are, when we are meandering, um, it is fascinating how we can look back and see God's hand truly at work. Um, maybe, maybe you'll let me say one more thing. About of course, yeah. So I finished my PhD in, in 1995 or six. It's hard to remember these dates so long ago now. Um, and then I didn't start working for Asbury until 2000. And mm. so there was a big chunk of time between the time when I finished my PhD and the time when I started to work for Asbury. Yeah. And one of the things that happened during that space of time is that it was really, so first of all, I absolutely 100% knew that the Lord had given me the opportunity to complete this PhD. It was yeah. without question a, a calling and a gift that the Lord had given to me. But during that time, I also surrendered that gift to him to be able to say to him, if all I ever do is teach Sunday school in the church, that will be sufficient. Wow. Yeah. And there's a, a piece of that, right? So when the job opening happened at Asbury and I said, you know, every door open, that was the Lord once again, giving me a gift. Mm -hmm. And it's been a gift that has allowed me, right? Like teaching is not always easy. You don't always have, you know, not everything always goes smoothly. And sometimes you're like, maybe I should move on. And the Lord has always said to me, it's not time yet. And so that's that piece of like just attention to what the Lord is doing, but also surrendering of, right, even the gifts that the Lord gives to us are things to be given back to him yeah. for him to use. Very much so. That was, that exact kind of mindset is what um, sort of spurred me on to do a congregational ministry while I was there um, on campus. You know, it just, it made sense. We lived in Nicholasville. So for folks who don't know, Asbury is in the bustling metropolis of Wilmore, Kentucky, that has all of two stoplights and, and a subway. Um, and oh, I lived in the next town over, which was, you know, maybe 20, 25,000. So folks, so not very big. 
but the church that we worked at, um, I followed again, another Asbury guy, Jordan, Jordan guy, who's now teaching at my alma mater, my undergraduate alma mater. And I, I really began to see, it's like, you know, if I, if I am going to have this quality of an education, I absolutely need to put this to use. I, I absolutely need to put this to use. And the kind folks there at the Nicholasville Church of Christ uh, very patiently put up with a, a relatively mediocre year-long Wednesday night Bible study on the Gospel of Matthew. That all happened because, well, I was taking a seminar on the Gospel of Matthew with Dr. Keener. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I like to think that I'm a little bit better of a teacher these days. Um, and it is in large part because of what you said, surrendering that gift, you know, putting that gift back into practice in, in service to him. Let us do that now yes. with the book of James. You like that segue? Yes. <laughs> Let's turn to the book of James. And uh, like I said at the, at the top of the episode, James is a lot of fun. It is so well-beloved. It, um, it reads almost, almost like one could say maybe a, a, a commentary on Jesus's teachings. Yeah, maybe that's, that's something we can dig into later. Uh, or actually, no, we could probably dig into it now. Every first question I've asked my, um, my interviewees is, what is the genre? What's the literary type of the book that we're dealing with? You jokingly quipped in the email that somebody could write a dissertation or two on what is the genre of the book of James. No, so, it wasn't quite a joke. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> if anybody is there at Asbury and... Needs <laughs> a, a dissertation topic. topic yeah. uh, Lee Haywood, if you're listening, I have called you out, my friend. I've called <laughs> you out here. Um, I'm, I'm happy to jump yeah. in. That Walk us through that. What is the genre of James? And, and then after we kind of dig into that, tell what does that tell us about the aims? Exactly. The, the aims of James. Maybe that could be. Question. That could be the title of that dissertation, The Aims of James. <laughs> So let's just start by reading James chapter one, verse one. I'm ready. It says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So what we see at the very beginning of this book is that it has all the marks that are necessary to be identified as a Greco-Roman epistle. Yeah. In other words, it identifies the sender of the book as James. Mm -hmm. It identifies a group of people who are addressed, the 12 tribes, and it has the word greetings, which is the most simple, straightforward way of, of writing to someone. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, there's hardly any other marks in the rest of this letter that it's right. a letter. Yeah. So there's two other things I would comment on. One is about roughly 10 times, don't quote me on the exact number, but about that much, we encounter the phrase beloved brothers, mm -hmm. or my beloved brothers, or my brothers, something like that. So brothers, and, and here we would say, James is addressing um, a congregation or a group of people. And he's identifying these people as his kin in the Lord. So, you know, although the word in Greek is, is brothers, we can probably translate this as brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah. 
But what this letter doesn't have, so if you're, you know, familiar with the New Testament and you read Paul's letters and these kinds of things, at the ends of Paul's letters, he usually has a long list, some list of greetings, right? He doesn't say, oh, you know, I'm greeting so-and-so and sometimes instructions and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Well, James appears to just end. Yeah. And it doesn't have that. It doesn't even say grace and peace or anything like that. It just it has a kind of ending. Right. And some people, some scholars have argued that it is a letter ending. Um, he says at the very end, 5, 19 and 20, he says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Mm-hmm. I'll stop. There's not even an amen. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So this has been one of the features that has caused scholars to have these questions about the genre. So that's the first one. It's a letter. Mm-hmm. Second, it's very clear to us from other New Testament books that the letter genre can occur alongside of other genres. Mm-hmm. And one of the most classic versions of this is actually in Revelation. I absolutely love the way that that book opens. And so it it opens with a self-description as the revelation or apocalypsis, the uh, unveiling. Um, And then it goes on and it says, you know, this is a letter to um, the seven churches and all these kinds of things. And then it also identifies itself as a prophecy. And so one of the things I love to talk about when talking about Revelation is how you have three genres that work together. So that's just an example to show you that um, those kinds of mixed genre things happen in the New Testament and other locations. Mm -hmm. And so scholars think that James is also a mixed genre. Okay. And so the second genre that people talk about in James is called, and I'm gonna give you the technical term and then I'm gonna unpack it for you. Yeah. And it's called paranesis. Mm-hmm. And paranesis is basically, it means traditional or wisdom teaching. Mm-hmm. And when we look at James, we're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And now, yeah. one of the really interesting things is that you would think, oh, that seems pretty st- straightforward. But there's actually been over the last hundred years, actually, now, there's been an unfolding debate about what paranesis means or what it is and how it relates to this letter genre. And so there was a famous uh, scholar on the book of James named Dibelius. And Dibelius described James this way. He said that James is a string of pearls and they're all held together because they happen to be in the book of James. But other than that, the only thing that connects them is that they share this string. (laughs) They're actually individual little sayings or individual Mm -hmm. little parables or individual little accounts that are just strung together one after the other on this string. And he referred to this paranesis as demanding a disconnectedness within it. Now, over the last 50 years, Basically, everybody and their cousin is using Dibelius as their foil. And they're basically saying, actually, no, paranesis does not mean that everything is disconnected um, from one another. And this this can be teaching with themes that unfold over the book of of James. Mm -hmm. Right. 
I am, I'm going to come back and weave these all together in a moment. Our, yeah, our, yeah, we're following so you. Genre number three. This isn't really a genre, but it's a style. And that is rhetoric or the use of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So people are basically arguing that James is making use of some kind of um, presentation, logical presentation of a set of topics that he wants to talk about. And so you see some people like Robert Wall would be a great example of this, who's actually arguing that chapters two, three, four, and five are essays. They're, so they're little logical essays that have rhetorical structures within them. Mm -hmm. And that those logical essays, the topics that are dealt with are all introduced in chapter one. So chapter one is like an introduction, yeah. all the different topics, and then with these short sayings, and then chapters two, three, four, and five are the exposition of those topics. Yeah. So now, like the struct, almost like the structure of your typical high school five paragraph essay. Yes, that's great. Okay. So now let me weave these together a little yes. bit. Yes. All right. So I want to talk, I want to go right back to that letter genre and talk about the very interesting address that we have in this, um, in this letter. So first of all, we have James, the author of the book. And there's a whole bunch of scholarly debate about which exact James this is and whether James, the brother of Jesus is the real author of this book or whether it was written by somebody later in the name of James, like yeah. big debate. Um, I'm not too bothered about that debate at the moment. Instead, what I want to come back and say that most scholars agree that the James that is referred to here is James, the brother of Jesus. And one of the really interesting things is that we have information about James, the brother of Jesus from other first century sources besides the Bible. Mm -hmm. So James is, is talked about in Josephus. And what we start to find out about James, the brother of Jesus, is that he was based in Jerusalem. He was connected to the temple. And remember that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, Jewish Christians were gathering in the temple and worshiping at the temple. And so for James to be connected to the temple is not unusual. There's nothing odd about that. Yeah. Um, and what it shows is there's this continuity between Judaism and Christianity. And James is part of that continuity. And what we find is that James was referred to as James the Just. And he was particularly known for his concern around uh, things related to how to live a pure and holy life. So James is located in Jerusalem. <laughs> and then he's writing to a group that he calls the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Yeah. Now, this is another group of people that it's really hard to identify exactly who this is that James is writing to. Yeah. So the dispersion is a way of talking, uh, is a Jewish way of talking about all the Jews who are scattered, not just in the Roman Empire, but even beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire back into Persia yeah. uh, and beyond. So the diaspora is this large uh, thing. Now you may have, like, let's just make this contemporary for a second. You may have heard this word used for people, for example, in our contemporary world, we might talk about the African diaspora. So yeah. These are people from Africa who live in America or who live in, in Europe, 
and they're not at home anymore. Mm-hmm. So here's the piece I want you to take away about this. James is writing from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center. It's the place where Jewish Christianity is rooted. Mm-hmm. And he's writing to people who are described as being out there. They're on the margin. They're the minority living in a majority culture. They're the people who are trying to figure out what does it look like to live a pure and holy life in the midst of a culture that is so decadent. Yeah. Right? So filled with issues related to status seeking and money and power and sexuality. I mean, all these things are real issues in the first century, just like they're real issues in the 21st century. Not to mention idol worship and all all the other unpleasant things that come with that. Yeah, exactly. And so um, James is giving his best advice, his best wisdom to groups of people who are living apart from or away from the center. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that can kind of help us as we're reading through the book of James to think about why does James spend so much time talking about two or three things? One is um, a focus on doing, practicing, living out one's, one's commitment to Jesus. So that's Secondly, why does James focus so much on the kind of speech that people have? And third, why is James so concerned about economics, about the poor and the rich and the relationship between them? And a lot of those concerns, I think, are connected to the fact that the people he's addressing are living as a minority group in a majority culture. Mm -hmm. So that's the letter piece. And then the Paranesis piece, the teaching piece, this is James. James is, um, he is an artist who takes the wisdom tradition of Jesus Mm -hmm. and the wisdom tradition of the Jewish people and the reality of the first century world that he lives in. And he weaves those things together in a new way for a new audience. Yeah. And so what was fascinating about James is that there are names. In fact, in my class today, we were so close to the words of Jesus, but not quite. Mm-hmm. And that happens um, over and over again. Now, Um, all that to say that the third piece is the rhetoric piece. And that is that James is trying to persuade these people to live a holy life, to live a life of purity and to live a life of that's exemplary in its doing in the midst of this culture. And that's the rhetorical piece. There's a persuasion that he is trying to accomplish in this, um, in this document. And so this is how the letter the teaching and the rhetoric all work together to bring about um, the particular piece of literature that we have here in our biblical text. Yeah. Today. Yeah. There was um, something you said earlier, 
particularly relating to how his audiences um, would be considered minorities in some sense, right? Minorities right. in some sense, uh, ethnic, religious, whatever. Um, and, you know, and, and with those, almost certainly uh, socioeconomic minorities, at least on the lower ends, often, not, a, not, a, not a entirely, but often, um, the issues that he brings up are deeply rooted in, um, in their culture. These would very much be things that are real, live, day-to-day -day issues. Yes. And um, I, I liked how you mentioned that James is kind of drawing on Jesus's wisdom tradition. I like, you know, there's not a lot on here that you could just flip through and see. No, oh, yeah, he quote like he doesn't quote Jesus very much. But if you're familiar with what Jesus has been teaching, as I was reading through this before we started, I kept thinking, man, Jesus says something about that. Wow, Jesus says something about that too. Man, exactly. it's almost as if, yeah, and that's why I mentioned earlier, um, it's almost as if one could consider this some kind of a commentary or exposition yes. on themes that were common in Jesus's ministry. Is, is, that, a, is that another fair way to, to assess what we see here in the book of James? Yes. Now, I like what Richard Bauckham does with this. He wants to go even further than saying it's a commentary. Mm -hmm. He wants to describe, so first of all, we, we recognize that Jesus, and this is Ben Witherington, who I hear you've had on your I've, podcast. I've heard of him before, yeah. Uh, he yeah. has a book in which he describes Jesus as a sage. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, Jesus fills many roles, right? We can think of Jesus as priest or prophet or king, but another role that we might think about is Jesus as the sage. And the mm -hmm. sage is the wisdom teacher, right? The person who distills the traditions of God for communication as a teacher to the people. And what Bauckham is going to argue is that James is another sage. And the thing about the sage is that they don't just give a commentary. So usually when I think about a commentary, I think about somebody who's taking something and explaining it. Mm -hmm. The difference between making a commentary and being a sage is that the sage is a person who uses the wisdom that they have to look at the tradition. And this tradition includes the tradition that comes from Jesus himself. Right. And it also includes um, the wisdom tradition of the Jewish people. And so this is particularly going to include Ben Sira, mm -hmm. Proverbs, and other Old Testament books as well. The prophets and Genesis all are quoted in in. James and is taking that tradition and making it your own living into it in such a way that it becomes your own and then speaking it forth anew in a new context yeah so, so that it's not just a commentary but that it's become something fresh and new for the people that one is speaking with yeah. So one of the fun things I like to do in my class, if I have enough time, is, is I like to ask the question, and I think this is great for even lay people to think about, which is basically, there's a prerequisite. So the prerequisite is, you must know the tradition. You have to know what Jesus said and did. 
Right. You, have to, you have to know what the book of Proverbs says, yeah. right? You have to be a, a student of the tradition. Yeah, you need to be saturated with that. Yeah, exactly. Saturated is the perfect word. But then the second part is, then how does that wisdom flow out of you anew mm-hmm. for the community that's around you? Once, once that wisdom begins to flow out of you, then you are moving into that stage of becoming a sage. And that's mm-hmm. what Malcolm does is he sees James as uh, not just a commentator, but a sage. Yeah. I think this idea of, of at least Jesus as a type of sage is, uh, is gaining a new footing or is, is gaining popularity anew with a, a fairly recent book by, uh, by Jonathan Pennington. So fans, friends of the podcast will know that Jonathan Pennington did our episode on the Gospel of Matthew. At the time of recording this episode, which is on a Thursday evening, it is tomorrow, Friday morning, that that episode of Jonathan Pennington will debut. This episode that we're recording right now won't go out until sometime in December 2021, I don't think, because um, we're doing canonical order. Um, but Jonathan Pennington wrote a book entitled The Great Philosopher, Jesus the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life. Nice. And so it's a similar kind of thing. And good, I, without having read the book, I'm almost certain that good in the sense of that he uses good life is good in the sense of which yeah in, in the sense of god defined right. very kind of thing that we would see james here doing as well yeah i i didn't know bachem took that uh, took that approach to it but it, it, that makes sense to me yeah mm-hmm. yeah so if then that is what james is uh what james is about then the aims of the book of james is to um, is to help is to get really his audience into um, into modeling yes. kinds of things that they would see Jesus doing. Can we unpack that a little bit more? Sure. So it's really interesting because James doesn't use the language of modeling, even though that's I think the idea that's there Mm -hmm. um so here's the thing about and and you'll notice that when i was talking about genre i did not describe james as wisdom literature right the reason i didn't do that is because more and more people that are talking about wisdom literature literature are realizing that that's not really a genre um excuse me that was the cat (laughs) (laughs) who wants to go out um So wisdom literature is not really a genre. It's really a collection of things. And there's all kinds of different approaches that can fit within wisdom literature. Yeah. So that's why I didn't describe James particularly as wisdom literature. Yeah. But one of the things that I should talk about in here is that um, James does things in very memorable ways, right? He talks about things in ways that are vivid and they catch your attention and they're easy to remember. So for example, he talks about the tongue as a fire mm-hmm. or he talks about a spring and he asks whether sweet and salty water can come from the same spring. And this vivid imagery is designed to be memorable so that we can meditate on the kinds of things 
that that James is concerned with. And they're easy to remember. So remember, this is an oral culture. Many, many, many people cannot read. Right. And they, they hear these vivid images and there are things that, they, that stick in their mind and allow them to think and remember so that they can imitate, so that mm -hmm. they can model, right? Oh, I really shouldn't have a mouth that blesses God and curses people because <laughs> people are made in the image of God, yeah. right? That's a very vivid um, depiction of the mouth. And so um, similarly, I think about the little stories that James tells. So for example, James tells a story, and I think all of us could relate to this story in some way, where someone comes into a synagogue. By the way, I want you to hear that it's a synagogue and not a church. Uh, right, yeah, that's uh, folks who might not have uh, familiarity with Greek text. Um, James uses this Greek word that we normally translate synagogue. Correct. And so, so these two people come in. One is a rich man wearing a ring, mm -hmm. a gold ring. As soon as we start to talk about a rich guy wearing a gold ring, we should be thinking of someone of very high status. And a poor man in filthy clothes comes in also. And mm -hmm. James says, you should not show partiality to the rich person over the poor person. You should not say to the rich person, sit in that good seat over there and say to the poor person, you sit here by my feet or stand over there. And, and it's a very vivid picture. And I think about any one of us who on a Sunday morning, somebody comes into the church and they're all dressed up and they look great. And you're like, oh, the usher will you know, take you right up to this nice seat at the front. Mm -hmm. And then um, as has happened in my own church where a church that's located near a downtown neighborhood Somebody wanders in who's uh, had a hard night and they obviously don't have a home. And it's so tempting to say to them, oh, just wait out here for the pastor. Yeah. We don't even want them to come into the, into the sanctuary. Yeah. That's the very, that's one example of the kind of partiality that James is talking about. He's saying, don't do that. Don't live mm. that way. Um, and then he's going to go on and, and again, quote from the memorable what he calls the law of love mm -hmm. so this is the instruction love your neighbor as yourself that right we heard this from jesus we heard this in leviticus so jesus is quoting leviticus and james is quoting leviticus paul quotes leviticus this is a cross right. when you go across the canon you start to see that love your neighbor as yourself yeah actually shared across the canon old testament all these various parts of the New Testament, this is the law of love. Mm -hmm. and, and James is going to, again, give these memorable uh, vignettes of what that looks like. Somebody comes to your door, knock, knock, knock. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They don't have what they need in order to survive. And you say to them, be warm, be filled. You know, actually, in the Greek, it's, it's middle. So it can be something like, warm yourselves, fill yourselves. It's even, it's even more yes. shocking. Yeah, right. yeah, and um, and and he again he says, basically, if you do this, it's the equivalent of committing murder. So the 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 language that he's using is this this memorable language that asks us to meditate on and think about 
how we're going to apply these wisdom teachings, these traditional teachings in our own life. So, you know, where is that practical spot? Like, I think for a lot of um, Americans, our neighborhoods are very class segregated. So we don't have neighbors next to us who are of a different socioeconomic status, usually. And that's, that's quite unusual. And so what does it mean for us in the 21st century to encounter people who might need daily food or might need sustenance for their body? Um, yeah. 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 It's fascinating to me that it seems like several times throughout the book of James, he has these... Um, these little you mentioned the word vignettes he has these little stories here where he he pits kind of you the audience member and a hypothetical person yeah and you and like you are in the story and it is up to you to make the choice do you yeah. show partiality to this um this clean <laughs> probably nicer smelling rich man or do you treat with equal uh, grace, uh, graciousness and goodness? This person who, if they're filthy, chances are they're probably smelly. Yes. Or yeah. um, you know, any of these other things that, uh, that he mentions. Um, touch and, on that and, and just yeah, take please. a little bit deeper into that vignette. Because I already mentioned that this is a synagogue and not a church. Mm -hmm. And there's two things here. One is um, James is a Jewish Christian, right? Yeah. Probably writing to Jewish Christians, mm -hmm. and they're probably there's a couple different scenarios. Um, one scenario is they're still part of a Jewish synagogue, maybe as a minority group within a Jewish synagogue. So that's one possibility, or this is their way of describing their meeting place. But what's interesting about the synagogue is that. It was a location where people not only studied scripture and worshiped God and did those things, but it's also a place where people settled disputes. And a lot of scholars have seen a judicial background behind chapter two. Mm. And the reason for that is that when you go on into chapter two, he's describing law and yeah. how the law functions. And so that's one of those those pieces there. Now, this is where it gets to that you were bringing up that, you know, you exist within this story, along with other characters. Mm. And in the presentation, one of my students did last week, I think, yeah, last week or the week before, one of the students was talking about how there's a third character in this vignette. So there's the poor man, mm -hmm. there's the rich man, and there's the audience. And the way that the student described it was to say that the audience is actually the person who's on trial. Interesting. So that the question is not about whether the rich man or the poor man should be preferred. The question is, are you the audience acting in accordance with the law of God? Yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself. So are you one who is going to be indicted mm -hmm. by the judge in the, in the last day yeah. as failing to love your neighbor? Or are you one who has actually demonstrated practically that you do indeed love your neighbor? Yeah. Yeah. For, for folks who aren't, uh, who don't have James right in front of them. Yeah. Chapter two, verse four, uh, I've got the NIV here. And so it's a, it, not as uh, 
formally equivalent of translation as some others, but yeah, he says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That is, that is essentially an indictment. Yeah. yeah. The audience member is on trial. Ooh, had, hadn't thought about it like that before, but that, to, that brings a little extra punch to it. Yes. And then Yikes. the other, the other piece about James is that people who are wealthy in James don't get any love. <laughs> so right yeah. in, in yeah. the very verse that verse five it says listen my beloved brothers and sisters has not god chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him mm-hmm. again you should hear jesus's beatitudes right there right that the kingdom Um, blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are the poor for they shall inherit the kingdom of god and um this idea that god has chosen the poor god actually does have a preference in this text between the rich and the poor and his preferences for the poor now um my students have been asking me this semester dr reese can a rich person be saved (laughs) Yeah, I want to talk about that for a second, but yeah. first I want to describe the way that the rich are talked about in James. Yeah. Right. So in James, it starts right off early in chapter one, verses nine to 11. He says the rich um, disappears like a flower in the field mm-hmm. and the rich perishes or withers away in the midst of a busy life. Then when we get to chapter two, in verse six, um, the rich are described as people who oppress others, and the rich are described as people who drag others into court. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter five, this is really it's it's sort of like a building, a building indictment of the rich over the course of the book of James. Mm-hmm. In chapter five. He basically, James, tells peop- the rich people to weep and wail because they should expect that they will suffer miseries because they are people, basically their wealth will not save them. And particularly, it will not save them because they have defrauded people. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, especially verse four, this is chapter five, verse four, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the ears of the Lord of hosts um, hear the cries of the harvesters. You have lived on the earth in luxury and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Yeah. So there's no, there, this is actually not a call to repentance. It's, it's a judgment against the rich. So this is why my students ask me. Too bad, so sad. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Ask me, Dr. Reese, can the rich be saved? Yeah. Uh, well, if you're reading James, probably not. Good luck. Right. Let me ask I along wanna, those lines. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. One more piece, and that is to say, fortunately, the rest of the canon reminds us that with God, all things are possible. Mm-hmm. Mark's gospel. Yeah. Very true. Go Very ahead. true. All right. Let me ask this question about the rich because. Usually when I read this, I always think of, um, and, and for those who are watching Dr. Reese's, Dr. Reese is still in picture, but her green screen is, uh, 
she comes running through her bookshelf. Um, for how I have always understood, you know, criticisms against the rich, for a long time, I always thought, well, I'm not rich. Rich people are people who are richer than I am. I had a, had a preaching professor in seminary who had this great, <laughs> this great uh, little anecdote that he used to tell, um, you know, kind of ragging on himself. He would say that one time he was he was writing a sermon together or putting a sermon together, and he he started talking about people who were fabulously wealthy, and he one one thing that he mentioned to describe somebody who was extraordinarily wealthy was that they had indoor swimming pools, and he stopped for a second to think, why am I specifying indoor swimming pools? And then it hit him. It's like, oh, because I have an outdoor in-ground swimming pool. So I, I'm not rich. People who are richer than me are rich. <laughs> That's always stuck with me. And so it's, it's tempting for me to think, well, people, I'm not rich. People who have more money than me are rich. Let me ask for James, how significant is it that he is writing to an audience of marginalized, religious, and mostly socioeconomically uh, minority communities. Is that why he has such a hard line against the rich? Or does that help explain why he has such a, takes such a hard line against the rich in these short five chapters? Yeah, that's a great question. So I want us to think a little bit about who are the rich in the first century. Yes. Mm -hmm. And how many people might be categorized in that category, the rich? Mm -hmm. Because the people he's talking about, like, especially when you look at chapter five, it is clear that these are landowners. And they're landowners who have the capacity to hire day laborers. Yeah. And um, chapter four, the end of chapter four is more about merchants. So they're a little bit, they're not the rich in the same way. They're people with resources, but they're not in the same category. So there's been basic, various kinds of economic work done. Um, Bruce Longenecker, Craig Blomberg, have done work about this question of how many people were rich in the first century. And really like this is, I'm gonna equate it to the kind of the upper 1% in North America. Okay. So you've got this, this, these people up at the top who really are fabulously wealthy. And how did they become fabulously wealthy? Oftentimes they did that through a combination of acquiring lands, right? So basically I'd be like, okay, I'll loan you money at a very high interest rate. And then you're going to pay me back when the harvest comes because this is an agrarian society. Then when the harvest comes and it fails, like, oh, well, you can just give me your land instead. Now you've got sharecroppers instead of landowners. This was happening all over Palestine in the time mm -hmm. of James. It was, had already happened all through the Roman peninsula. So, or Italian peninsula. So this idea of wealthy landowners who add fields to fields and houses to houses, and they become fabulously wealthy at the expense of other people. Those are the rich. Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right. Even people, like the, the reality is 
most of the congregation who is hearing this, no matter where this letter was sent to, do not fall into that category of the fabulously rich. Mm -hmm. It's quite possible that they are day laborers. It's quite possible that they, you know, have modest businesses or have um, enough for subsistence. This is uh, Bauckham's argument that these are people are neither poor nor rich, but rather people who are able to get along day to day because yeah. they have the means to give to their brother or sister mm-hmm. who, who is in need. So the audience is described as having the resources to be able to give. So, but one of the pieces here is that in what way is this good news to hear that God has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith? What does that mean? It means to be rich in trust towards God and to be heirs of God's kingdom. Who is it that God wants to give the kingdom to? Not to Caesar and all of his uh, aristocrats, but to the day laborers of the earth. Mm -hmm. This is good news. Now, the challenge for us is how that translates into the 21st century. Yeah. And here's where I would say a couple of things. One is James describes groups of people who have the capacity and need to have the willingness to have their hands open to provide for the daily needs of people who don't have their needs met. Mm-hmm. Now, he does not say anything about working for those needs. He does not say anything about you know having to meet certain standards in order to get those needs met. He simply says, if somebody comes to your door and they're hungry or thirsty, and they need their daily needs met, then the law of love is to love your neighbor like you would want to be loved, Mm -hmm. no conditions. That I think is really challenging for our North American context. Sure, yeah. We have a tendency to look at people and say, well, they should work to get what they need. And we could go to Paul and we could talk about that in another context, but that's not James's mindset. Mm -hmm. James has a mindset of, especially around your brothers and sisters in the Mm -hmm. church that if someone has a need and you have the capacity to meet that need either individually or as a group of christians then you should come together to do so yeah and i just have to add that if you take this up in your church you will see god move it's Mm -hmm. really amazing and you will find out that god has the capacity to grow a heart of generosity um, among his people yeah 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 and you're right to um you're right to point out here that james james is unconcerned or at least he appears to be unconcerned with you know these people who come to you yeah if they have a need i i suspect that james would be ne'er too pleased if these people come with a need and it's because they have been, for whatever reason, um, you know, not uh, that they have not been filling you know, the duties that they need to be fulfilling. That is something that they will have to answer for. Yeah, that, so that they have to answer for. On the other hand, though, I, I think you're right here. Um, it it is, yeah. You know, I'd. I might be putting words into James's mouth, but I've gotten to the point where I've kind of not come full circle, but, you know, when I'd see somebody on the street and they obviously needed, you know, 
you got money for food or something along those lines, I would give it to him. And then eventually I got to a point where I was like, hey, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then came back around to, you know, I can't imagine standing before God in judgment and thinking, I, I was not fooled by anyone. I, God, I was not taken in, right? Nobody took advantage of me. Mm. I would rather err on the side of, based on what I knew, I tried to fulfill this, this royal law of love. Now, there's smart ways to do that, sure, right? But yes. But I think you're, I think you are right to, right to point out maybe how uncomfortable that make may make us feel. Yes, yes. and and I, I tell you, one of my favorite verses from this whole book is in chapter two, verse 13. So I don't, the, the first part of this verse makes me uncomfortable. I think you should make all of us uncomfortable, which is judgment will be without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But the second part of this verse, mm -hmm. mercy triumphs over judgment. So beautiful because it invites us to be merciful people, right? to have our hearts shaped not by fear of judgment, but by participation in God's mercy. So beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Reese, we, we ended up covering, really, the question that I, that I was going to ask after uh, sort of what is James trying to do? What's the purpose of James? Uh, that question was, what are some major emphases of James? We've really hit those kinds of things. What's maybe one unique contribution to the New Testament that the book of James makes uh, in addition to the kinds of the sort of a uh, you know sage presentation that um, that you mentioned earlier you know it's a really interesting feature of James is that Jesus is only mentioned twice in yeah James chapter two verse one one in chapter two verse one of each of those chapters and the Holy Spirit is never mentioned in James. Mm -hmm. Instead, the focus of James is on God. And there's a real orientation here towards God the Father and what it is that God does. And I think where we see Jesus coming through in this book is through those, um, what you would have called commentaries on Jesus's words mm -hmm. um, that unfold here. And I think that's one of the unique contributions is that this is a book that reminds us that of the importance of God and what who God is and what God does um, and, and what it might look like to live as people of faith in relationship to God. And so that, I think that's one of the very interesting kind of unusual features of the mm -hmm. book. Yeah, yeah, that, um, that is something that a lot of folks have noticed. Um, Historical figures in the history in in, um, in Christian history as well. Figures in Christian history, most notably Martin Luther. Right? Didn't he? Um, it, it, I didn't prompt you for this question, but uh, didn't Martin Luther have some pretty negative feelings towards the Book of James? He did, and and part of the reason for that was that he felt that he actually felt that James did not proclaim the gospel mm -hmm. because he understood the gospel to be about um, I don't know whether to say limited, that's not really 
fair to Martin Luther, but he understood the gospel to be about reconciliation between um, humanity and God through the atoning blood of Jesus. Yeah. But I think the gospel is a more, the good news, right? So gospel is a word for good news. Mm -hmm. And often think about that, like when I'm preaching or when I'm teaching, I often ask myself, in what way is this particular thing good news for the audience that I'm talking to? If the whole Bible is good news, then how is this good news? And we already talked about that a little bit, the way in which this text is actually good news for the poor, because it's a book that says, God sees you, God cares about you, God um, wants you to know that you have a special role in his kingdom. Like this is an amazingly um, good news book for people who are on the margins, on the edges, uh, those kinds of things. And that's one, one piece. I think the one, the one theme we haven't touched on maybe as much as we could mm -hmm. is a theme that applies to everybody. And that is self-control of one's tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all the time we have for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> what does James have to say about that, Dr. Reese? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, and in an age of social media, why is that important? <laughs> oh, my, my, my. <laughs> you know, James describes the tongue as a fire that is, that is, um, it gains its strength and power from hell. Yeah. That's the place it comes from. And then he goes on to say about the tongue, he says, that all the animals in the world have been tamed by humankind. Mm -hmm. But human beings have not tamed the tongue. Now, it's a wonderful use of the passive verb right there, because it says the tongue has not been tamed by humans, but it suggests that maybe here there's the possibility that the tongue could be tamed by the person who's submitted to the Lord. Mm. So the perfect person, if you want to know what it is to be perfect, you can read James 3, 2. It says, um, anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect. And, and he doesn't mean here, you know, doesn't stutter or something like that. It's actually the word, any, uh, somebody who never stumbles, never transgresses. It's another word for sin. It's not hamartia, but it's the word for stumble. Mm -hmm. and, and so what is it to be perfect is to have control of the tongue. And, you know, at the very beginning, if I was going to pick out a thesis statement for this book, I would probably point at James 1, 26 and 27, where he's talking about what pure religion is. And he talks about it as care for orphans and widows. There's that concern for the poor right up there at the front and keeping oneself unstained by the world. Well, what does keeping oneself unstained from the world look like? The world in James, the world is corrupt society. And being unstained from the world means um, the opposite of that is being in faithful relationship with God so that God comes to be the one who is controlling, directing, I don't want to use controlling, who is directing, steering the person mm -hmm. so that their behavior, and here I want you to note that speech is a behavior, so that their behavior, including their speech, is under the taming work of God. 
So it's one of the things is we're often concerned like for self-control, like that I have to control my speech. But there's a piece here of uh, allowing one's speech to be controlled by God. Yeah. So that God's at work. Uh, what is God at work doing? God is at work. Um, now, this is not James's language. Paul would say God is at work filling us with the spirit. James doesn't right. say that. Mm-hmm. What James says is God is, is at work helping us to live the law of love. And we live the law of love in our daily um, practices. And those are the practices of, you know, what I do for my family, what I do for my students, what I do for my neighbors. But it's also the practices of how do I speak to my family? How do I speak to my neighbors? And let's go all the way to social media and say, what does that look like? Like when I'm posting on social media, are my words winsome, wholesome, pure, things that bring joy and delight to others? Or are they things that are harsh and overly critical? I don't want to say that we can't have critical speech. Right, yeah. Right? But, yeah. Just, but there are ways in which we attack people with our words. This is not what James is asking us to do to practice and again so much of James is about our practice practical doing and practical speaking yeah yeah I know you mentioned chapter 2 verse 13 as a favorite verse would you say that that's kind of your current top favorite verse or is there another one that you could point to and say you know, this for me, this this really warms my heart when I come here to the book of James. You know, one of the things I, I talk to my students about is that um, every time you read the biblical text, there's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak afresh mm-hmm. to, to us. And sometimes what that means is that one time when you read the biblical text, some particular aspect of the text will jump out at you. And that's a great opportunity to ask the Lord, why is this jumping out at me today? Do you have something you want to say to me about this? Right? This is an opportunity for that. And uh, this semester, the phrase that has really been, so, so 213 has been a long time favorite of mine, one that I keep coming back to, but this particular semester I've been thinking about, I'm looking to see exactly, because I have the phrase in my head, but I'm looking to see exactly which verse um, it comes from. It's from verse 25 in chapter one. Um, The phrase is literally just a phrase, but the phrase is to gaze into the perfect law. And the question that's really caught my attention this semester, this, this time around of studying and teaching James is, wow, what am I looking at? Where do I have my gaze fixed? What am I spending my time on? Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to get caught up in the endless scrolling on social media. Very easy to get caught up in the endless scrolling in the news cycle, especially now that we have these devices like phones that just... <laughs> Holy news endlessly. Like it used to be, you got the newspaper, you read the newspaper, it was done. There was nothing else to read until the next day. Right? But, <laughs> yeah. but this endless yeah. scrolling. 
And so it's this question of like, where, where's my gaze? What am I looking at? And then this perfect law, what is this perfect law? Well, I think that it's the law of love. In other words, this, this focus on love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so that question has really caught my attention this, this semester of where am I spending my time? What am I looking at? And is it a, am I gazing into this instruction to love my neighbor as myself? Yeah. Yeah. I told a gentleman the other day, I think he was a visitor to church. I can't remember if it was, I think it might've been of all places, right? It was in our youth room. Our, our church is a room for the youth group where on Monday nights, we have a Monday night football men's small group where we watch the game for the first half. TV goes off. All the guys get together and we have a Bible study and we go until we're done. You know, if the game comes back on and we meet, you know, halfway through the third quarter, oh, well, you know, the point football is just a means for, you know, a facilitating transformational togetherness. Yes. And I was telling a guy who is, uh, who had been invited by a friend who, um, relatively new Christian on fire for the Lord and is bringing a lot of his, a lot of his associates in with him. I told this guy, you know, we, we tend to become like what we spend our time thinking about and like the people we hang around. So feel free to please come back, join us next week. You know, if Sunday church isn't your thing and that's okay. All the while thinking we can get there, mm-hmm. we can get there when it's time, but you know, come back here. This, this pretty non-threatening environment, mm-hmm. right? For a guy who, you know, has some church background, but right now is, is kind of not so sure about it, but Monday night football with, with friends and free food. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can roll yeah. with that. This idea of gazing intently. And, and basically that's kind of what I was. Mm-hmm what I was uh, drawing from. Yeah. Dr. Reese, is there one final word about the book of James? I keep wanting to say the gospel of James. It's not, <laughs> not, not an apocryphal gospel, but you really do see embodied allegiance, embodied fidelity. Yes. You see bullet point after bullet point, example after example of embodied fidelity. Yes to the gospel here and so that's why that's why i keep coming to the word gospel yeah. uh, even though it isn't that any any kind of last uh, last nugget you want to share with us as we wrap up i just it just connects to what you said before just now which is is this how did you say it again because it's really good james as embodied is that what you said embodied embodied fidelity yes embodied fidelity i really like that because one of the other pieces that james is going to talk about is um who are you friends with and it's really interesting because he's not saying are you friends with sinners he's not interested in that conversation right right what he is saying though is is your friendship friendship with god what an amazing thing, right? Abraham is a person who is called in James, friend of God. Mm-hmm. And we're invited to be like Abraham, to have that sojourning faith of Abraham that 
follows God with intention, et cetera, et cetera? Or are you friends with the world? And he, again, he does not mean particular people. Right. He does not mean particular sinners. Um, what he means is, are you friends with the corrupt system that is at odds with God? Mm-hmm. Right? The system, and here, here's where I would say that system that privileges self over others, that system that privileges wealth over poverty, that system that privileges um, all of my rights and all of my um, kind of, of pleasures over the willingness to sacrifice on behalf of others, love of neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so it's that, that big question of who are you friends with? Friends with God or friends with the corrupt system of this world? And if you're a friend of God, then you want to gaze into the law of God. And what is that law in James? It's loving your neighbor. Yeah. Reminds me of, uh, of Jesus's final monologue there in the book of John. No longer do I call you servants. Yes. I call you friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very true. Dr. Reese, thank you so much for your time tonight. This was a, this was a great conversation on the book of James and um you know as, as you and i reflect on this conversation afterwards i'm i'm sure there'll be a hundred more things where we think ah oh, you know we could have dug into this we could have dug into that just five short chapters so rich so full of good stuff dr reese thank you for your time thank you for having me okay bye-bye